Father. We remember this season every year because it means so much to us every day. And we thank you for the songs that remind us of what you did as you came down to earth, becoming man. And doing so, Father, expressly for the purpose of dying. You enjoyed the life that we all know. But then, Father, your son took that fixed eye on Jerusalem, walking into the city knowing he would die, Father. And so even as we remember his birth and we celebrate what it meant, we can't do that without understanding where it took him and why that matters. We thank you, Father, for this reminder. Let us praise you with these songs throughout this season with a mindfulness to what they really mean and what was really required. And Father, as we go into the gospel studying that very thing, I ask, Father, that you would make it all the more real in our hearts today. And in that way, help us to live it out, to testify to it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a seat, everyone. Welcome and good morning. Thank you for being here. We're about to finish this study. Now, if you're counting, there are 1,071 verses in the Gospel of Matthew. We are down to the final 20. And in these verses, we are studying the third of three key aspects of our faith. Paul said these are the things of first importance for the Christian. That is, that we must know Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he resurrected. Paul says those are the things of first importance for the church. That simple but profound three-part story is everything to the Christian faith. It defines our faith. And up to this point in our study, we have gone through the first two of those. In previous chapters, we've looked at Jesus' death, and then we've looked at his burial. And today in chapter 28, we're going to start looking at his resurrection, the third part. And the resurrection is the key to everything in this book and to everything in the Bible. Do you realize if Jesus was not raised from the dead, nothing else in this book would matter? Nothing else. I mean, you could take everything the way it is. All of the, 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 the scripture, all of Jesus' miracles, all of his teaching, everything that happened up till, in fact, just take chapter 28 of Matthew out of the book, and the rest of it no longer matters one bit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, our faith is useless because everything in here is a lie. That's how important the resurrection of Jesus is. So if Jesus had died and not been resurrected, if death was the end of him as it is for all of us, in the sense that people don't come back to life. If that's what had happened to him, then it would tell us Jesus was no different than any other person. He has the same outcome the rest of us do. And then that means nothing he says is of any significance. But if he returned to life, as the testimonies say, then what he proved is he's everything he said he was. Because human beings do not have the power over death. We can't stop it, and we certainly don't bring ourselves back from it. No one does. Only God has that power, self-evidently, the giver of life. And so if someone can bring their own dead body back to life, in fact, they're so confident, they tell you beforehand that they're going to do it. If somebody can do that, do you know what that means? That means they have the power of life over death. They have solved the existential concern of humanity. They have solved the problem no one else has figured out how to solve. If that's true, everything they say matters, especially on the topic of obtaining eternal life. They are the one you want to go to. You know, it's easy for some Yahoo to come along and say, I'm you know, Buddha, I'm Muhammad, I'm somebody who can tell you how to get to heaven, and then when they die and don't come back, what difference does anything they say make? The person who can come back from life, from death and, and be alive again, that's the one who has the answer. That's the one you listen to. So everything in this book matters because he came back to life, which is why we studied it so painstakingly, emphasis on pain, over the last three years. It's why we took our time to understand it, right? So now our focus is on resurrection. And that takes us to chapter 28, and the first verse of chapter 28 we studied last week, but when we looked at it last week, we only looked at it just to understand conclusively what day of the week Jesus died on. If you were here, you remember we learned it was a Thursday, not a Friday, as tradition would tell you, and it was in the year AD 27. We calculated all that, we worked it out, and that was all a little interesting maybe for some of us, but that was not the main point of the chapter. It wasn't even the main point of the verse. It was something in addition to that. Today we're going to get to the main point. What is the main point? The main point of verse 1 and this whole chapter is that the impossible happened on this day. Of course, 
We're talking about a dead body returning to life after three days, standing up and walking out of a tomb. And as Jesus said, what is impossible for men is possible for God. So let's study what happened on that day, starting in verse one. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. All right, I repeated verse one from last week just to give you context. Matthew says there were two Marys. That's Mary Magdalene and that's Mary, the mother of Jesus. They come to the grave at daybreak on Sunday. Now, I do find it interesting how Matthew records these two women. He says, Mary Magdalene, very specifically. Now, she's going to end up being a critical part of the story. But do you notice how he refers to Jesus' mother there? The other Mary. The other Mary. You know, in, in the way most people think of it, it's Mary, mother of Jesus, and the other Mary. In the Bible's way of thinking of it, it's Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. In fact, in John's gospel and in Mark's gospel, they both refer to Mary in this moment as Mary, the mother of James. Which is true, right? The, the natural born James is the, is the son of Mary and Joseph. What you're seeing here in these examples is the way that the Bible consistently downplays the significance of Mary as Jesus' earthly mother. Yes, Mary is a significant biblical character, but then again, so is her cousin Elizabeth, and so is John the Baptist, and so is Peter, and so is Paul, and the list goes on. She had, in her case, the honor of being chosen to carry the Messiah in her womb. Uh, those other characters did other things. But that's where her importance stops. I mean, it's important, but it's not more important. It's just her role. Mary is no more to the plan of God than anyone else was in the story. This, you know, what you have to remember is the Gospels are a story about Jesus. Everybody else is just a bit player in this, in this story. It's all about him. So Mary is fundamentally a sinner saved by grace and honored by God having received the favor of playing this particular role in the Messiah's first coming. But if we assign any greater theological significance to her than that, we have moved into the field of idolatry. And you can see here for yourself in this statement, among others in the scripture, that the Bible didn't do that. The Bible does not put her on a pedestal and ask us to do the same. It simply acknowledges her role and moves on. And in this case, it barely acknowledges her. The other Mary was there. All right, back to the text. This is early Sunday. This is right at dawn, daybreak. And they've come back now. These women have come back to finish the burial preparations for the body of Christ. Remember, on Thursday, they were in a rush. They didn't have the chance to finish, so they were planning to come back when the Sabbath was over. They waited till daybreak because they didn't leave the city at night. They had bought the spices the night before when the Sabbath ended in the city. And now they're here as early as they can, twilight, probably around 4 a.m., based on when the sun comes up in this part of the world. And... They are, are walking to the tomb, and you have to wonder as they're going, what's in their minds at this point? Remember, they were there when the thing was sealed up. They saw the stone rolled in front of the tomb. They know it's closed with a big, heavy stone. That stone is far too heavy for a few women to push and move out of the way. It would take real uh, help, men, strong men, many of them, in fact, to move that stone. So how do they expect to gain access to his body? Right? What were they thinking they were going to do? You know, Mark says in his gospel that as these women are walking on the way, they actually comment aloud to one another, who, who are we going to get to help us move the stone? I mean, they're fully aware of the fact that they're not going to just walk into that tomb. You might wonder, did they think the, the soldiers would help them? I doubt it. I mean, that doesn't seem very likely, does it? They just seem to be going in blind faith, hoping for some kind of miracle to show up when they need it. And when they get to the tomb. Now, look, no one would have blamed these women if back in Jerusalem they had said to themselves, you know, this isn't worth it. <laughs> it's impossible. It's closed. We're not going to get in. You know, let's just stay home. Everyone would have understood that, right? Everyone would have said, no, you know, don't worry about it, Mary. It's fine. You know, it's not your fault. In fact, I kind of wonder if when they said they were going to go, if some of the male disciples who were hiding for fear of their lives didn't say to them, what are you, crazy? Don't go. You're not going to get in anyway. It's completely pointless. You know, silly women. There they go, wandering off to go. You know, do what they can, know they can do. I just, I, I, I know I would have said that <laughs> if I was there. So, from a human perspective, you just look at the scene. From a human perspective, there's no reason to go. 
There's no reason to bother, no reason to think the tomb is going to be open, and yet here they go anyway. And look, I love the thing I love most about it is not that they're going, they're going eagerly, first in the morning, fast, getting there quick, and yet without a plan. Right? And because they did that, they were privileged to see the greatest miracle that's ever been done in the history of mankind. That is, in a nutshell, the payoff of walking in faith. That's it. You get a chance to witness God doing something amazing, something impossible. Because of your obedience, you're there when it happens. If you limit your service to God to circumstances where you can see the beginning from the end, you can understand how it can happen, it all makes sense to you, you could kind of figure it out on your own even, it just sort of is a natural plan, and you say to yourself, well, I can get involved in this, I see where this is going. I can assure myself it's not going to be disappointing. I mean, if that's your idea of serving God, you're going to miss a lot of miracles. You're, going to, you're not going to be there. You know, if God says to you, start a ministry, and you say to yourself, I don't have any money, I don't have any time, I don't know how to do it, it's not my expertise, never tried this before, that's for someone else to do. I can't see the beginning from the end, so I'm just going to stay out of the way. Remember when Moses used the same excuses in Exodus chapter 4? God spoke to Moses and said, go to Pharaoh. And he said, I don't have a mouth. I can't speak. I don't know what I'm doing. You need to send somebody else. I have no help. And God said, Moses, I got this. I'm going to take care of all those problems. You just move. It's not about your ability. It's about your availability. Just go. God says to you, go pray with that stranger you see sitting on the park bench or somewhere in the store or something. And you say, I'm not going to do that. That's weird. That's strange. They're going to think I'm a nut. They're going to tell me to maintain social distance. I don't want to go do that. That's not going to help them anyway. I don't even know what to pray for. Right? You know, if you only get involved in the things that make sense to you, you only pray for the things that you assume are accomplishable, you're just never going to see God do something that you didn't expect. If you only go when the task is doable, you're never going to do the unthinkable. If you only go when it makes sense, do when God gives you something that you can understand, and so on and so forth, you will not see Red Seas parted. You will not see 5,000 people fed, and so on. And I realize those are not the miracles specifically that you might see. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is you're missing the point of the whole thing. God does not need you. He doesn't need your help. There's nothing you're bringing to the party that is helping him at all. If anything, you're making it harder. That's not the goal. The goal is not get involved to make the miracle happen. God is doing what he's doing with or without you. You're getting involved to see him do something with you in the process. Look about the, look at these women, for example. Jesus was going to walk out of that tomb that day. It did not matter if they went or if they stayed. They, they were not making it possible for God to do what he was going to do. They simply had a choice to be a part of it or not. And, and they did it without knowing, and I think that's usually the way it works for us as well. God doesn't typically work the whole plan out for us on paper and show it to us in advance. So the faith aspect of this is that you're going because of an inclination, because of a leading, because of a suggestion from God. But you don't know why. You don't know where. In fact, the whole thing seems a bit crazy. And yet you go. And when you go, you see what God had planned. And then it makes sense. You may be the miracle for someone. You know, you may be the person someone else has been waiting on for prayer or to show up and do the work that they thought no one would ever do. I mean, you have to be willing to walk in faith. And to do that, let me suggest to you that the first step, the thing that often gets in our way, you need to learn how to shut up that voice inside you, that voice of reason that explains to you all the reasons why it shouldn't work or can't work or shouldn't be done. You need to get rid of the critics. You need to stop thinking about why the world wouldn't approve it. You need to stop rationally evaluating God on terms that are within your control and sight because that's where you set boundaries that don't allow for miracles. Now, hear me out. I'm not saying you bring about miracles because you get involved. I'm not saying you you get miracles just because you wish to see them. I'm not saying any of that. That's all in God's hands. We know that. I'm saying it is in God's character It's in his plan to do all manner of things, including things that we think are not possible. And as he does them, wherever he does them, you can be a part of it or you cannot. And we talk ourselves out of the opportunities that God puts in our path because we're only making room for the rational, the sensible, the logical, the safe. And if he calls you to a certain path, whatever that is, and it appears impossible to you, all you've realized in that moment is that there's a miracle waiting, potentially, 
Find out what he's going to do. Get involved. These women left their home with no possible way to open a tomb. They just expected God to do something. And what did he do? Something even beyond their expectation. Their expectation was a miraculous opening so I can prepare a dead body. They got a miraculous opening and a live body. I mean, that's just, it's unique. It's a moment. It's not going to repeat. I get it. But it's an example. When they experienced, what is your example going to be? In verse 2, Matthew says that the way this actually happened was a several-step process. That God was working on this even before they left the house. That as they were arriving, or perhaps earlier in the evening, the earthquake took place, that he says there in verse 2. And it coincided with Jesus' moment of resurrection. What you're seeing God do there is mark the resurrection moment as he did the death moment. So it... 3 p.m. on the day before when Jesus died, there was an earthquake. At the moment he resurrected, somewhere in the wee hours of Sunday morning, not the day before, obviously three days earlier, there was the earthquake. And then three days later in the wee hours of Sunday morning, when Jesus actually came to life, there was an earthquake, marking it as well. And then God opens the tomb with an angel. He sends this angel down, who then, through angelic power, pushes the stone aside. And I love this. He kind of hangs around now. You're going to see this guy, whoever, whoever this angel was, you're going to see him hanging around for a while like it's an open house, like he's just sort of welcoming you into the open tomb for a while. He, he stays there to give some context to the women so that they understand what happened. And his arrival scares the Roman guards to the point that they, it says here they're, they're, they're as if dead. The point is they fall unconscious. To the ground, which is interesting because it means they're not witnesses to anything that the that the saints witness. They're only witness to the fact that an angel came, and then later they wake up and the you know the tomb's empty. We'll hear more about them later. So when the women show up, they come on this really odd scene. Tomb is open, uh, guards laying on the ground, and this guy in white sitting on the stone. It says that the angel sits on the stone after he rolls it away. It almost seems whimsical, you know, like a kid sitting on legs kind of hanging off, dangling, just sitting there waiting, waiting for them to show up. And to understand what happens at this point, you need to start looking at the other Gospels. I'm going to summarize what you'd see if you looked around in the other Gospels. But at this point, according to the other Gospels, the order of events here is a little different than Matthew. Matthew's kind of taken some things and mixed them together and just given you a general summary, which is fine. That's why we have the other Gospels, so that we can sort this out a little better. And in the other Gospels, you find out that the first person to come to the tomb by herself was Mary Magdalene. So she arrived by herself. She comes, finds the tomb open, uh, doesn't see the angel, doesn't see what's in the tomb. She just assumes, oh, they've opened the tomb to rob the grave. And so she turns around right away, runs back to the city to tell the disciples, someone's stolen the body. Then, while she's involved in that... The other two women, and now we're talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Salome, who Matthew never mentions, they come separately, and they show up, they see the open tomb, they see the angel, and it's their encounter that Matthew's actually writing about here. He, he puts the Marys together in the scene just to sort of gloss over all those differences, but the fact is it's the Mary and the Salome here that are having this moment in, in verse 5 now, when it says, the angel said to the women... Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, and ran to report it to his disciples. So I always get a kick out of the standard angelic greeting. Uh, Do not fear. Do not be afraid. I always joke that if they had name tags at a party, it always started with, hello, do not be afraid, I'm Gabriel. Because it's the standard thing every angel says to the first person they meet. And it's because the encounter with the supernatural is fear-inducing. And he wanted them to be assured. It's not a bad thing that I'm here. He says, the Lord's not here. The one you're looking for is not here. He's risen. He's, he's left the dead. He's now alive. And he's walked out of the tomb. And he invites them to inspect. They see the tomb. We assume they see the bench empty, the wrappings on the ground, and so on. And then he tells them, here's what you're going to do next. You're going to go back, tell the guys what you've seen. Tell them he's raised from the dead. And tell them to go to Galilee right now. Jesus is going to meet them there. So if they had done, if the men who heard that did what they were told, the next time they saw Jesus, it would have been, in the Galilee, because that was the intent. The, the idea was to get away from Jerusalem, get away from the Roman uh, you know, oversight, get away from the prying eyes of the Pharisees, get to safety, let's get where it's calm, we'll have some chance to talk, meet, 
I'll tell you what the plan is from here. That's the idea. So you got Mary and Salome hearing this from the angel. While they're at the open house in Jesus's tomb, Mary Magdalene's back at the city with the disciples trying to convince them of what she saw. Now she's telling them that the tomb's been robbed, but they don't believe her. The guys don't believe that she's telling the truth. In fact, in that day and in that culture, men typically viewed women as unreliable witnesses. They wouldn't trust their testimony. They weren't allowed to testify at trial for that reason. So it's a bias, obviously. So they're sitting there disbelieving Mary Magdalene. Meanwhile, the other two women are having their experience with the angel. So after a short time, Mary and Salome make their way back as well. And when they tell the disciples what they saw, now they have a second report. Only now in this report, you've got angels included. And the story that he's not stolen is resurrected. That prompts John and Peter to say, all right, I don't know what's up with these women, but we're going to go check this out. So they run to the tomb at that point. So now you've got John and Peter running to the tomb. And uh, they go, they see basically the same thing that Mary and Salome saw. They see the, the wrappings, they see the, the, the tomb empty. They don't see the angel. So they come back now convinced that something has happened. John says they believed, but it's unclear what he meant. Did he believe that Jesus was gone? Did they believe he was resurrected? Did they even know what it meant? They're just in a mystery. They're just sort of trying to make sense of it all. They come back. Meanwhile, here we go, another, another movement of everyone here. As they're coming back, Mary Magdalene leaves again. She's just distraught. She doesn't know what to do, where Jesus is. So she just goes back to the grave. She doesn't know what else to do. When she comes back, John tells us that she goes into the tomb. She sees two angels now. Before she can even really talk to them, she turns around and sees Jesus outside the tomb. And she's the first person to see the risen Lord, Mary Magdalene. And immediately she wants to embrace him and she's overjoyed. Jesus says, don't touch me. I'm going to ascend to my father. I'm, I'm clean. I need to go make the sacrifice in heaven. Do not touch me. And so he tells her, just go back and tell the disciples. You get the sense especially from John's gospel, that Jesus is just trying to get through to these guys, believe it, and go do what I told you to do. Go to Galilee and stop hanging around here worrying when you've heard the reports. Now, it is interesting that Mary Magdalene was the first to see the risen Lord, or even that all of these initial encounters are with women. I say that because of this. If you were inventing the story of Jesus, if the story of the gospels is a lie, it's just myth, it was a story written to fool us. If that's the case, and you're writing this story and you reach this incredible moment of the resurrection, if you're going to lie about this, you would not cast as your first witness a woman. And here's why. Because culturally, again, based on the bias of that day, you're undermining your own story. You're casting as your witness a person that in that day was viewed as unreliable. And so you have actually made your story less believable, if you were lying, by casting women as your early witnesses to the effect of this outcome. The only reason you would say that a woman was the original and first witness of this is because it actually worked out that way. And that's actually to the authenticity of Scripture. It validates this in an interesting way to know that women were the first witnesses. But there's obviously a bigger reason why that was God's choice. Remember we talked last week about chain of custody? So we have this problem of the story needs to be airtight. It cannot have holes. It cannot be a, a situation in which somebody says, I saw him resurrect, but then there's no one around to see him actually die or be buried. I mean, if there was any hole in the story, you could say, well, the thing is not believable. So God orchestrates the events in such a way that the same two women are there when he dies on the cross. They watch him get prepared for burial. They see his body put in the tomb. They see Joseph roll the tomb closed with the stone. And they are the same two to see it open and see that he is not present. They form a chain of custody. So in other words, these women were the only women who were present during his ordeal. So God made sure they were the first to see him resurrect. Or to put it simply, they stood by him in his trials. So they had the privilege of seeing this moment of resurrection at the end. And on top of it all, it would seem as though God is using these women to mock the men a little bit. Do you get the sense of that? I mean, they're the ones who get to see the whole thing and see the Lord. And, and God puts an angel there to greet them even, right? But when the guys come, oh, where'd the angel go? It happened to be his lunch break? But then Mary Magdalene comes back. Now there's two angels. It's almost as if God is saying, no, let's let these guys just be you know, stay in their foolishness, stay in their ignorance. They don't want to believe the witnesses. They didn't want to be there when the things were happening. They were too afraid. Well, then they can just kind of enjoy being ignorant for a little longer. It's, it's almost as if God is pointing it out 
by how he's brought these circumstances to pass. What's holding them back? Do you know what's holding these guys back? Resurrection. The idea that Jesus came back to life is a bit of a bridge too far for them right now. I mean, they've heard the reports. I'm not saying it's not in their head. Maybe they're contemplating it. But what's holding them back is a full-on embrace of the truth that Jesus is alive again and said, go to Galilee. If you believe that, I mean, truly believe that, what would you do? I would submit you'd go to Galilee. If you're in any doubt about that, you do nothing. And there you find, as an example, the centrality of resurrection to the experience of Jesus. What you believe about resurrection dictates everything about what you feel and think and do with Jesus. If he is who he said and resurrected as he said, then you care about everything. If you're in any doubt about that story, if you're not clear on the fact that it's literal and true, then eh, you're not likely to do anything with it. In fact, you're more likely to disbelieve it and throw it away. So these guys are struggling with that core concept. And you have to think about this for a minute. They spent three years with Jesus. They saw the miracles that we just read about. They heard things he said that aren't even in the Gospels, according to John. So they had everything going for them when it comes to believing this, to accepting, and they still struggle. And because they struggle, they do nothing. That's exactly the problem with resurrection. It's an all or nothing proposition in our understanding and in our faith response. Now, let's be sympathetic with them for just a moment. If I had you bury somebody and three days later you go to the grave and you find it empty, what is your first thought? Well, it's not that they resurrected. Your first thought is somebody took the body. And that's what they're thinking too. So I get it. It makes some sense, right? But when you think of everything they've heard, everything they've seen, and now the witnesses who've told them, and then they go and they see the grave empty themselves, and they see the wrappings on the floor. When you give the full picture, though, it is if these guys are just unwilling to be convinced of what every piece of data is telling them because it's just not what happens. It's just not a thing. People don't just die and come back to life. You know, it's, it's interesting. That is... That is the most remarkable thing that could happen, I would argue. I mean, we can talk about things we can do, build big buildings or make amazing things happen. We can talk about even like parting the Red Sea, God you know, doing amazing things with the creation. But there is something about death, the universality of it, the inescapable nature of it, the finality of it. All of that makes it something of a holy grail of, of miracles, right? If somebody can come back from life and never die again, we have no earthly concept what that's like. The idea that every day, you have no thought to the next day not being a reality. That there's no end. I mean, just the idea of eternity is outside our ability to appreciate, isn't it? There's no, there's no end to tomorrow. How does that even work? How do I not get bored? That's my ADHD in me thinking about, how, how am I going to fill all that time? Don't worry. God's got a plan. It just goes to show, resurrection is the key, and it's what Christian faith requires. You have to be confident in resurrection. And here's the part for us this morning that's most important. As amazing, as unprecedented, as, as hard to believe as it is that someone could resurrect in the case of Jesus, do you realize it happens to everyone? That's what's so ironic here. As unique, as, as different, and, and weird to us as resurrection might be, it's going to become the common experience of humanity. Every single human being, believer, unbeliever, doesn't matter. Everyone from Adam until the last human being is going to be resurrected, the Bible says. One day, you too will have the exact experience, well, an experience, not the exact experience, but you will have an experience of resurrection like Jesus. The Bible testifies to this. And if that's the truth, we need to understand that a little more this morning, I would argue. That is, as we're understanding what Jesus just did in resurrecting, we need to understand resurrection itself, the idea of it, because it's our experience too. And to do that, we first need to understand what is life and what is death, biblically speaking. Let's start there. We have a little bit of work to do. Okay, roll up our sleeves here. Living, being alive consists of two parts. That is, according to scripture, you are two things. You are a physical body and you are a spirit. You could say you have a material part of you, physical, material part, and you have an immaterial part. Body, spirit. Now, some of you say soul. Let me just clarify. The word spirit and soul in the Bible are synonyms. They're used interchangeably. They're not separate ideas. You have a spirit, or you can say soul, pick one. And you have a body. 
God, when he began humanity, he fashioned the first human being's body, Adam, out of dirt. He started with the earth, he fashioned it into a body as God can do, and he made a, a body of Adam from dirt. He gave him a physical body because the goal, the plan, was that Adam would live in a physical world. So he needed a physical body to interact with the physical world. But at first, as he creates that body, it's lifeless. It's just, it's just laying on the ground, lifeless. What was necessary to bring that dead body, that unalive, let's call it that, a, a yet-to-be-living body, what did it take to bring it to life? God had to put into that body a living spirit. So the Bible goes on to say that the next thing God did for Adam was he breathed, and the word breath in Hebrew rocket also is the word for spirit. So it suggests that the spirit of God brought a spirit into the body of Adam. And when the spirit of Adam was joined with the body of Adam, he was alive, he stood up, he started living. And every human being, and by the way, his wife, similarly, Eve, God took her body from the material of Adam's body. And it's really the same thing when you think about it. It traces back to the same source. If Adam's body came from the dirt and woman's body came from Adam's body, well, we're all coming from the dirt, you know, indirectly or directly. And then he gave her a living spirit and she came to life. And every one of us after that has come into existence through the procreation of man and woman. That is, God gave flesh the power to create new flesh. But he reserved the right to turn that flesh into life to himself because every spirit comes from God. So he takes the, the procreation process which produces flesh and he puts into those flesh the children that are in the womb. He puts into them a living spirit so that they are alive. So life comes from the life giver in the form of a spirit made into a physical body which then the spirit occupies and together we call that a living person. All right, so what is death? Well, death is literally the opposite of that. Death is the separating of the spirit from the body. So at death, our spirit leaves our physical body and as a result, our physical body instantly becomes lifeless. If you've ever seen someone who's in death, a family member or a funeral or something, you know that experience we all seem to have where you know who he is or she is, you recognize them, but they don't really look the same. And not just because of the you know, death process and what goes on with it. I'm saying there's something about their appearance. You can say, I know that's the person, but it doesn't really look like them anymore. If you've ever had that feeling, what you're witnessing is the difference between an inanimate object and something that is animate, something that is alive. Literally, that body, when the spirit left, is no different than a wax figure of the person because, in effect, they're both made of material that is not living. And so it's natural that they wouldn't look real to you anymore because they're not. The life of them is gone. So in death, you have a spirit that has moved on, a body left behind, a body that is lifeless. Now, your spirit is eternal. The spirit never ceases to exist. It never ceases to be conscious. So once a person comes into existence, that's an eternal act of God. The spirit now has to go somewhere. The body's gone or it's dead. Now the, body, the spirit's left the body. Where does that spirit go? Well, the answer depends on what you believe at that point. If in life you believe that Jesus was your savior, then the Bible says that person being counted righteous by faith is welcomed into the presence of God. Their spirit goes directly from that body into the presence of God. If on the other hand, you did not come to that faith in your life, then you remain in your sins, the Bible says. And as such, you are unable to enter into the presence of God. And that requires that God make accommodation for that spirit elsewhere. The spirit of an unbeliever has to go away from God's presence. And God has appointed that they descend into the heart of the earth, into a place of torment called Hades in the Bible. We say hell. And they exist there in spirit form. So when we go before the, the Father, when we go into heaven after death, our, we, our spirit goes. We are in spirit form only for at least a time. Similarly, when an unbeliever dies, they go into this place of torment. In spirit form only, also for a time. So life is the union of a body and spirit. Death is the separating of a body and a spirit. And if that's true, then you know what resurrection is. Resurrection, then, is the reuniting of a spirit and a body. So if you've ever thought resurrection meant a spirit coming back to life, or a spirit gaining consciousness again, no, 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 no. it has nothing to do with that. The spirit never lost consciousness. The spirit was never gone. It was just living somewhere. The point is the body has been taken away and we need a new body. So the resurrection process is a spirit re-entering a physical body again. And that's what these women reported. 
They report that Jesus, once dead, now is alive. His body is up and moving. He's come out. He's taken the wraps off his body. When he resurrected, Jesus was alive again in a physical body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 15, verse 16, that this fact is the basis of our own hope. He says, if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And we who have hoped in Christ in this life only, well, we are of all men most to be pitied. I mean, think about it. What fools are we? We spent our whole life here talking about Jesus and all he's going to do for us. And if he was not raised from the dead, when we die, that's the end of us. And we're all going to find out it was a big, cruel joke. That's what Paul's argument is. But he says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So it all hinges on what happened to Jesus. If he was resurrected, we can expect the same. And Paul talks about this hope. And you've heard me say this before. The word hope in the Bible is not some generic word for feeling good about the future. It has a very specific defined meaning. The hope of a Christian is resurrection. It's not witches, it's not wealth, it's not health. It's not, it is resurrection. The hope of our faith is that death is not the end of us. And so, what is our hope based in? Isn't it logical that our hope of resurrection is based in the fact that Jesus resurrected and that he said he'd do it for us? That's your faith right there in a nutshell. And Paul says, if that ain't true, your hope is worthless. If it is true, your hope is everything. And what you're seeing here is Jesus fulfilling that by coming back to life. Now, having said what life and death and resurrection are, it's now important to highlight the differences between what happened to him and what will happen to you? Because you're interested, I'm assuming, in what goes on for you. What does my future look like in death and then in resurrection? Well, look at what happened to Jesus first. First, when he died, his spirit left his body. Remember, the scripture said that he died on the cross when he commanded that his spirit go to the Father. He removed his spirit from his body, and as such, his body goes lifeless. But what happened to his spirit? Where'd he go? Well, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus tells us where he went or where he was going to go. In Matthew 12, 40, he says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus, when he died, left his body and his spirit only went to a place in the center of the earth, literally, physically, beneath your feet, a place that the Old Testament calls Sheol. Now, to explain why and how and what's going on there, it takes me a minute, but it's worth it. Just hang with me here for a second. Sheol is a literal physical place, center of the planet. There's a reason why lava is so hot coming out of the earth, because the center of the earth is very hot. And there's a reason why it's very hot, because the people who are down there are supposed to experience heat. That's the whole point. And Sheol is the place in which God keeps the spirits of those who have died. However, there are, some, there are some details here you need to know. First of all, before Jesus came at his first coming, everyone who died, whether believer or unbeliever, their spirits, when their body died, their spirits went down to Sheol. Both groups went down there. But the difference in accommodations is pretty dramatic. So if, according to Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells us this in Luke 16, there were two sides to this place as God prepared it. One for the believer, one for the unbeliever. The believer's side was a place of comfort, not hot, not unpleasant, just a place of waiting. The place for unbelievers was the place you kind of expect it to be, hot and in torment, or as we call it today, Hades or hell. So Sheol had two sides, only one half of which is hell. They were all down there, though. Now, you, it makes sense, of course, that an unbeliever would be there. That's what we've heard the Bible say all the time. But it would also confuse you, I assume. Why are the believing Old Testament saints going down to Sheol? Why aren't they just going straight up to heaven and being with God? Well, until Jesus came and died, the atoning blood of his sacrifice had not yet been made. It was not yet possible for God to cover their sins. So until Christ came, he had to accommodate the saints in a way that was comforting, not punishment, but at the same time, he couldn't welcome them into his presence. So they died and descended to this place of waiting in Sheol until the Messiah 
So when Jesus died, his spirit, we're told, descends three days and three nights into the heart of the earth, into Sheol. And while he's there, he addresses both groups of humanity who have been there all along. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 3, 19, that Jesus first presents himself to the unbelieving spirits who are held in the side of torment. He's said to be preaching there, and what he's saying to them is he's confirming the prophecies of the Old Testament time concerning the coming of a Messiah. He's not preaching there to convert. He's not there to give anybody a second chance. That's not how it works. They're hearing Jesus so he can convict them for their unwillingness to believe what was given to them before he came. In a word, he's saying, I told you so. Now, Paul says in Ephesians 4 that Jesus also addresses the Old Testament saints. Those are the people who died in faith. And they are on the comforting side. Jesus shows up to them and he says, I am the Messiah you have been waiting for. That in other words, they died in faith, but not having received what was promised, but looking forward to it in a future day. And now they're seeing the Messiah show up to assure them those promises are being fulfilled and they can now put a face and a name to that Messiah that they always waited for. And they can embrace him in fullness now. They believed in the promise of him before. Now they believe in who he is in his, in his presence. And he spends time with them as well. And then finally, Paul says in Ephesians 4, that Jesus then escorts these saints out of this place of waiting and into the heavenly realm because now his blood having been applied, they are free to leave. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 8, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. All right, so what we're learning is Jesus had a mission to go down there. He's not down there to suffer on our sake. Remember we said already, when he said it was finished on the cross, it was finished. All that he does after that is a part of going through the rest of the plan of God. He's not suffering down in Sheol. He's working down in Sheol. It's a work day. He goes down there to preach and to leave captives free and then take them to heaven and do all the stuff he's doing. Plus, he's staying away from his body for three days to prove that he was actually dead. And then... He gets back into his body. Now, that's his spirit's path. Let me just cover his body for a second. What's his body doing when he, when he dies? Well, his body's laying in a tomb, obviously. Now, if we die and our body is left behind, it's lifeless, but it immediately begins to decay. Because the curse that God pronounced on all creation and on the human body for sin, that curse was, from dust you came, so to dust you will return. So the consequence of sin, in part, is that we live in a body that is under a curse due to fall apart and die and decay. That is the curse on the body that God pronounced. But Jesus, no sin. He had no sin. His body was not under the curse. He took our curse for us on the cross, but he himself, his body, had no sin. And therefore, his body did not decay for the three days he was in the grave. Psalms 16.10 says, this is Jesus speaking in the first person. He says, and you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's a way of saying you're not going to leave me there forever. And then he says, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So in that one verse, listen to what Jesus just said. I'm going to only be dead for a while. I'm going to go to Sheol, but not forever. And my body is not going to fall apart. It's going to remain without decay so that I can return to it. And that's what happened. His body lay in the tomb. It was lifeless, but it was not decaying. And that's why when he resurrects, he comes back into the same body. His body is prepared for him. All the blood is still in the veins. Everything's ready to work. He just has to get back in it and it comes back to life. Now, that's also why our resurrection is going to be different. Our resurrection is going to be very different. When Mary Magdalene visits the tomb, for the second time, she comes and she sees Jesus. She recognized him. She saw him. She's like, look, you're alive. That would tell you that Jesus' spirit went into the same body that it left. There's no, no change. I mean, we assume that the damage done by the cross is being healed very quickly as Jesus has come back to life. Not totally, though. There's still some holes in his hand and places. But he is alive and he's coming back to rec- being recognizable. So our body, however, being corrupt and under sin, we don't have that, that outcome. Our body decays after we die. So when we resurrect, we don't go back to our old body, nor would you want to. 
And I say that with no prejudice looking around the room. I'm just saying there's no reason to go back to our old body. It's not like God can't do it. People get all wrapped around, well, God can do anything. He can find your molecules in the dirt and come. Yes, of course he can do it, but you don't want him to do it. It's not the plan. Your old body is under a curse because it's corrupted by sin. Getting an old body back doesn't solve the problem that death was supposed to solve. The whole idea is to dispense with the old so that better things can come. When your body, when it's time for you to get a, a new body, when that resurrection moment happens, reuniting spirit with body, God creates an entirely new eternal body for you, one that is sinless and ready for the future. That's the promise that we have. We get a new body. Jesus got his old one. Why? He had no sin. We have sin. That's fundamentally a difference that requires that the resurrection be different. So you don't want to go back to the body that's corrupted. And let me tell you why. Because it's not just about the fact that you die. Do you realize that you get sick because of the curse? You get old because of the curse? Your body weakens because of the curse? I mean, the fundamentals of life that we take for granted, the deterioration of the physical body, the, the breakdown in biology of our body, as much as we work to make it go away and medicine does its best and so on, it's all just Band-Aids on a problem that can't be solved that way. The body is destined by God to deteriorate, get weak, get sick, and fall apart and die. That's what the curse does to the body. And there ain't no reverse in that. Never there will be. What God does is he replaces it. And when you're resurrected in a new body and you live in the kingdom in that new body, try to give some thought to what that will mean. Try to process that for a minute. Imagine how differently life will be for you when you're living in a body that does not have sin and is not corrupted by sin, is not under a curse. Living in a world that's perfect, ruled by Jesus, who never lets anything get by, has complete control and perfect control over the world. A world where you live, and think about some of the implications, you live without fear of harm. No one can ever harm you. You can't die. There's no violence against you. No one will ever do, you know, the, the, the phrase in scripture that says, no weapon formed against me will prosper. That is not speaking about now. Do you understand that, right? I mean, there are definitely weapons today that can harm you. And some very well may. That's a statement about the kingdom. In a day to come, when you are in your perfect state, sinless and without death, nothing can harm you. Nothing will make you hurt. There's no chance of violence. There's no worry of sickness. There's no one who can do anything against you. It's, I don't even understand that. How can you, you know, our days in our life are so directed now around the fears we buy insurance, we buy locks, we buy cameras, we have, you know, we wear seatbelts, we think about who's around the corner, we don't talk to strangers, we tell our kids don't get in the car with someone you don't know. Think about all the ways our life is directed about worries of death ultimately. All that goes away. What kind of joy comes out of a life like that? Unimaginable, unimaginable peace. That all happens because you're not under a curse and you live in a body that can't die. It's, a, it's such a foundational change that has no comparison to our experience today that it's hard to even wrap your brain around it. But there's a part of you that's like, I can't wait to have to do that. And it's all because of resurrection. Resurrection is what makes that future a reality. Take away resurrection, not only is Jesus a fraud and our faith is useless, but the hope of the future goes away too because this is the best it gets. And you know, for an unbeliever, this life is the best it will ever be. But for us, this is the worst it will ever be. Everything is up from here, right? That's what's ahead of us. Eternal peace and joy, unimaginable outcomes. Why? Because Jesus died and Jesus resurrected and we follow him based on his promise. If you believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead as he promised he did, then you have that hope assured you have that future. It's either tomorrow, that is your death and ultimately your resurrection. It's either tomorrow, it's either the next day, it's coming. And if you think about it carefully enough, it should change how you live now. If you live today fearful of sickness or death or decay or a retirement home or you know your, your kids abandoning you when you're older, any of the things that come with the aging process, if you're thinking about that right now, your mind is on the wrong thing. Yes, those things may happen, and no, no one enjoys them. But what I'm saying is they're all temporary, and what comes after that is so much better. You're not going to stay in those situations for long. So if your life now, and this is, this is how I tell myself things all the time. I'm always talking to myself on this issue. If you're living now as if death is the most important concern of your life, you're living as if you don't believe in resurrection. And it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous erosion of your witness. Because if you look and live the way the world does, the world that doesn't know of these things, and then you try to tell them that you have this great hope in Jesus, 
All they see is this cognitive dissonance moment of like, you're saying this, but you look just like me. You talk about the same worries I have. You're doing all the same things with your money and your time that I do. You're trying to avoid the same death I You, you really are kind of wrapped up in whether or not you're going to make it through this world. And yet you're telling me that you've got this hope of the next. You can't do that effectively in witness, I think. You have to, you have to decide you're going to live what you believe. At least for the, pay, for the purpose of, of congruity in your message. The Bible says that if you believe in resurrection, Jesus is first knowing yours comes next, then you have that promise assured. But here's the last thing I'll say for anyone who may be still doubting. If you don't believe in resurrection, whether that's Jesus's, certainly, or, or your own, here's the irony, it's still going to happen. This is one of those truths that doesn't change depending on what you believe. It's going to happen to everyone. The Bible says those who die without faith will one day be resurrected. They will be called up, their spirits will be called up from that place that I described earlier. And they will be given a new body, just like those who believe. And they will have that new body so that they can stand in a moment of judgment. And after the kingdom, we are resurrected before the kingdom so that we can enjoy it. They're resurrected after the kingdom so that they can stand for judgment. And then alive, judged based on their sins, alive, by the Bible says, they are thrown into the lake of fire where they dwell forever in that body. We don't want to dwell on that thought, certainly. It's not something we would want for anyone. But the fact of it, the reality of it, should be a reason for us to speak all the more about what we believe. So whether you believe in resurrection or not, one day you're going to experience it. The only difference is where you get to live. Better to believe in the promises of God than not, and certainly better to believe that Jesus returned from life so that we can follow him in that way. And as we go into Christmas this week, what a great opportunity, to, depending on how many people you see and what kind of family gatherings you might enjoy, this is a great opportunity to ask that fundamental question, who is Jesus, what did his death mean, and what do we think about resurrection? Let's see if God gives you that opportunity. Let's see if he asks you to do something that perhaps you don't think is possible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask you, Father, for opportunity this week to live out our faith Live it not only in our words, Father, but in our actions, that we would adopt a lifestyle, a way of living, a way of thinking, a way of speaking that anticipates our resurrection, looking forward to that new body, that new day, that time in a kingdom to come. Father, we know they're real. We know they're true. We just haven't seen them yet. But like the Old Testament saints who believed in the Messiah before they knew his name, we can believe in the kingdom to come before we see it because we trust in you and in your promise. And we know, Father, that having proven yourself in Jesus, we have all the more reason to trust. Help those whose faith, Father, is not there, whose confidence has not been made sure yet. Father, let them see the truth as we do. And Father, I also ask that for those of us who have believed it, that we would be useful in your hands to speak that truth to others. In this season where we're gathered and when we know and, and talk about you so much, let us make sure we don't forget, Father, the ultimate purpose in it all that we would know and believe that Jesus died and was buried and was resurrected. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.